0: And now, coming to you live from Arlington, Virginia, at the World Fantasy Convention 2014, it's Jonathan Strahan, Gary K. Wolfe, and very special guest Helen Marshall and Rob Shearman on The Coot Street Podcast! Every time
1: he does that, I want to say, and they're off! Yeah. Uh, but anyway, thank you for. No!
2: I feel like we should have Kermit the Frog waiting We're
0: not in Arlington, heads. Virginia, are we? are not. Are we? Seriously? You thought you, you were in Washington, D.C. We, we I, can I see thought so. the White House from here. So the, whole,
3: so the whole thing's a fake, isn't it? Oh, yes. Is what you do? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. So, yes. That's,
3: yeah, sorry. So, welcome yes. back
0: to the podcast. Thank Frog. you very much, yeah. And welcome. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful to have you with Helen. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm very excited to be here. We, we, we very nearly had, uh, had, had wanted to have you on a week or two ago when we were talking about Canadian science fiction.
2: I was uh, I was listening to that, and I just finished editing the year's best Canadian speculative writing. I'd
1: seen that you were doing that, which is why we wanted to, because you would know exactly what happened last <laughs> year in Canadian fiction. I
2: yeah I do I do have a good idea of what happened last. Lots of horror, actually. It seems like. Horror, which is the hardest word for a Canadian to say. Yeah, horror. I <laughs> more so, like horror I've actually no idea. Horror. Horror. Or, or sort of the Ellen Dallow, horror. Horror. That's, yeah, that's very the good. closest. <laughs> that's the closest imitation I can do of a New York yeah. accent. It's not very good. We can just cut that, right? No, no. We can <laughs> actually horror. run that. That's I good. good. Run it's good. Yeah. Sorry.
0: <laughs> and along with a little sort of uh, sort of gallery of the people we've offended, yeah. but ethnic both ethnic groups, nationalities, yeah. and individuals.
2: I remember uh, my sister Laura and I were going to the World Horror Convention in Austin and uh, we had to stop in customs and explain that we were going to the World Horror Convention and that our boss was the guest of honor. And they were like, what? That's very strange. You've got to get your R's down properly for that.
1: Yeah. There's also something that's happened to me when I try to talk to family members who don't read anything. And the term World Fantasy Convention doesn't associate with literature for them at all. They think no. I'm going to a sex convention of
3: some sort. Oh, really? Yes. Because I've never had quite that problem. I mean, people assume I'm going to be dressing up. I mean, I mean, I just come. I was at a Doctor Who convention a few days ago, and of course uh-huh. they, it's it's massively, well, yeah, massively cosplay. Massively. So when I am off to World Fantasy Convention, people think, and I, I was I was telling them that. I mean, you know, I was, I was in Orlando, and I said, "Well, next week I'm off to Washington to do World Fantasy," and they said. And so, what do people dress up as there? And I said, well, they dress up as books most of them. <laughs> you know, we, we, we all go around wearing these sort of costumes where we're just like big book spines, and then we just sort of add pages onto us and we sort of flutter around. And, and, and some of them believe me. It's, it's strange. I, I don't see. So, so, so why sex? Who, who on
1: earth believes. In the general population, it's not more in like a certain, certain segments of the there? general population, when you go somewhere to celebrate fantasy, fantasy means one thing. I, I, I suppose. It's either Disney <laughs> or sex. Well, exactly right. <laughs> right or possibly both. Fantasyland <laughs> at
3: Disney now is a completely different interpretation. Yeah,
2: today. I don't know why they had all those harnesses there. Yeah. That was weird.
3: <laughs> and stirrups.
1: All those stirrups.
3: <laughs> and all those people screaming in that high-pitched voice. Anyway, yeah. Happy, though.
1: Just, just talking to, just as a footnote to that, I was talking to Michael Durda who had a collection of essays out called Bound to Please. <laughs> oh, <that was>. <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea what was coming.
3: It is the problem, though, with the English language, and 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 I, and, I, and I. This is a serious point. Actually, not it's not that serious a point, but it's true that, that you know that, that you read that we have. You know, it, it is it is the um. It had, there are more words in the English language than in most you know any other language mm-hmm. at all. Which mostly just means that there's innuendo. I mean, almost anything you say now can actually have, a, have mm. a different connotation, which I think is very, very funny, obviously, because that's my sense it's of It's very you know.
1: useful for a writer. But that's, <laughs> a,
3: but that's actually why. I mean, I mean, you know, it's the it's sort of thing that I, if I have to go to school sometimes and do readings for, for, for children at schools because of the Doctor Who stuff, everything you've now written, ever, they seem to find funny, and, and you ask them why, and, it, it's, and there's some new euphemism that you'd no idea about when you wrote the story five years ago, which mm. has now poked up its head. And that's probably bad. Poked up its head is probably Poked quite bad. Just In fact, actually, now I consider that, that would be one. It's it's it becomes very very difficult, and teachers roll their eyes and say, "Don't don't say that. Don't don't call your monster that because that's that apparently means penis." You say, "Oh, Anyway, <laughs> I shouldn't be oh, no. we'll, we'll,
2: we'll raise the level of discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Let's raise
1: the level of discourse. But but, but staying on that same ambiguity because. Yeah. Uh, well, both of you write. You mentioned horror, and both of you have written stories that they might be horror. Yeah. Uh, they certainly would have been horror at one time because there was no other market. And when you're coming up with a title, and I'm thinking Helen, the title of your new book of stories, which is
2: Gifts for the One Who Comes After,
1: that could completely be a horror title, huh? or it could be a, a sex fam- title. A sex title. <laughs> 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 we, <were laughs> we were elevating the camp level It could no, it could
2: be a horror title. It could be a family <laughs> saga. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, I, I think that family sagas normally are horror stories. Oh, well, that's true. So, yeah. And <laughs> that's, that's actually the ambiguity I was really trying to pick up on, because I wanted the the main theme of the book to be about legacy and about what we pass on to our children, and oh. the way families relate to one another. Uh, but... I I was playing with different ways of phrasing it, so Gifts for the Ones Who Come After sounds a little bit kind of uh, new-agey, oddly when you have the plural there, but Gifts for the One Who Comes After has a weird, sinister Mm. undertone Mm. to it, which I like.
3: Actually, I was meant to ask you, because obviously, I mean, you know, all the last year while you were putting the book together, we were talking about it quite a lot, and I I never actually quite asked you what on earth the title meant. I was assuming that that one... Because it's that's just my way. I think I was thought of it as something satanic, really. And well, it probably the is.
1: construction itself suggests something like the worker at the threshold. Ab- absolutely, the yeah. It's, it, it's it's ominous, as you say. Yeah, said. yeah.
2: Uh, and well, <laughs> I don't. I don't know exactly what it means, except that I wanted that sense of the thing that comes after you that is not part of you. But when you think about children, there is that weird kind of ambiguity that is always there. They're the thing that's going to survive after you. Mm. So they're both connected to you, but somehow sort of sinister and and possibly a little bit threatening. I find children threatening.
1: Mm. (laughs) There's a whole tradition of horror, children horror stories that goes back to yeah including mainstream and this is one of the other things we were talking about where where a horror story is is it a horror story or is it a mainstream thriller mm. what was the one about the awful child that was a bestseller 50 years ago or something they um, was made into a movie the good right son?
3: no, mm. uh, no tr- need, I need more clues <laughs> um, it was made into the bad a- seed by William Maxwell oh okay yes yes uh,
1: and which yes. is actually a terrific horror movie but the novel itself was not meant to be a horror it was just about a bad kid yeah uh, which in the 19 I'm gonna say 1950s when it was published was a radical notion yeah now it's uh it's it's a whole tradition of fiction practically
3: yeah. but the thing I find now is that is that because the genre has been so skewed in that way you know horror used to be there was a time when horror just meant slasher stuff mm-hmm. you know but I don't I would never write that because because my stuff tends to to move into sort of, and into, so does yours, Helen, isn't it? Into yeah. more sort of absurdist or surreal elements. I don't even see things where you've got, I I, I don't write about serial killers, but that's obviously, mm-hmm. for, for some people, that's what horror means. And it actually, for me, it doesn't. That seems to me more like thriller. And and it is that bizarre thing that, that you feel that there was this, I mean, some people, disc- I was asked recently about, about favorite horror films, and, uh-huh. they, and I came up with a few, and then someone said it was Jaws, and I thought, is I didn't I never thought of Jaws as a horror film, but I suppose it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I, but I see that as more, you know, a sort of a public information. <laughs> <laughs> actually, um, but it, it's odd because because there was a time when anything involving thrills and spills and potential death would have been cast as something that was just shoved to that sort of nasty, threatening side that you call horror. Now I think that there's so much going on. The fact that I mean, I was looking at one of the Harry Potter films recently, mm-hmm. and it was full of horror tropes, mm-hmm. but yes. you wouldn't ever yeah. think of that as being a horror book yeah. or, or a horror book for, 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 for children. But it obviously is in many ways. Yeah. And I think that now things actually... I think it's wonderful, actually, that the idea of mainstream literature and genre literature are, have become so blended in together that it mm-hmm. doesn't actually matter where one stops and one ends. It's, it's so much more exciting I think that's true. not, I think not to know. You were
1: talking about the 1970, um, the slasher, the... Um what was what was the punk uh, the Splatterpunk. Sp- uh, punk punk yeah and neither one of you would have come close to being qualified no. as a horror no. writer during that period
3: absolutely not uh,
1: but only a few years after that uh, there are writers and one of the people that we should say a word about uh, uh, on the podcast is Graham Joyce mm. who's who's the Tooth Fairy because there was no other way to market it was sold as a horror novel yeah and gave him a reputation and. Well, there are really disturbing things in Graham Joyce novels, but they're not disturbing in a splatterpunk sense at all. No, it's really. Yeah, I
2: I found that very interesting. When my first collection came out, I didn't know how people were going to react to it at all, and it was oddly the horror crowd that really. Well, the title of of that
1: one one (laughs) was. Hair side,
2: flesh side. What do you expect? But, but the thing is, is that's actually an academic term. That comes out of... Uh, I'm a I'm a book historian. I, I mm-hmm. look at medieval manuscripts. And uh, each page of parchment of a medieval manuscript has a hair side and a flesh side because they're made out of animal skins. Oh. So the hair side, you can see, it has all the little hair follicles. And so I really liked it because it... It has a horror kind of feel to it, but it's also about insides and outsides as well, and about uh, Mm -hmm. books as bodies and and people becoming literature.
0: Did you both deliberately set out to write in a horror space? I mean, individually separately?
2: I started writing most of my short stories uh, when I was reading a lot of horror and weird fiction for cheesy publications. And uh, Mm -hmm. so I think that that really crept into... My brain at the time, when I originally was writing, you know, when I was experimenting with short stories twenty years ago, when I was growing up, actually, I was hugely influenced by Charles Lynch and I was trying to write all of these kind of uh, bohemian bohemian stories mm-hmm. about, you know, people playing musical instruments and hanging out with fairies, and but it never worked for me. I could never, mm-hmm. I could never make any of those stories work. Uh, but something about uh, elements of horror, I think, really jives with me. I like the fact that they're not reassuring. You know, mm. in a story that could go horror, it means you can do anything you want with the ending. You don't have to mm. bring it to um, any sort of nice resolution. You can leave things open-ended, and that has a uh, that works really well for me.
3: I like yeah. that. I mean, I never expected at all to be seen as a horror writer. I mean, I mean, I was I, I wrote comedy. Yeah. I, I wrote comedy theater for unbroken or I didn't do anything else except theatre for my first 10 years of being a full-time writer and that's and I, I look back now and I see that it's the same stories I tell I mean they were always weird stories because that's mm. just what my sense of humor is so mm. you know, so you'd write a play about a couple who begin to fall in love with the same imaginary person and that would be for me now a short story I'd write in, write into a book and it mm. might and it has sinister elements because that imaginary character begins knocking on the door and and plaguing them, mm. but I just thought it was a joke, and and I and I still think that most things I write, I think what happened to me was because I accidentally, and it was accidental, I just happened to be doing the right sort of TV at the time when Doctor Who was revived, mm. and because of that, mm. I ended up being a Doctor Who writer, and that suddenly tipped me in a way that I wasn't seen before by any of the critics in Britain or sure. in theatre critics who would, you know, I mean that they would always. If they were going to compare my work to anybody, they compare me to people like Stoppard or Pinter or Eightborn. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I was a genre writer, and the genre crowd suddenly said, "Well, all of this stuff that you do seems now to be weird." And I was, and I began to write my first book. And when that came out, and I was hugely lucky, and you know, it was mm-hmm. it was a small press in Britain, uh, Comma, who were great, and it got picked up just because that year there happened to be judges at World Fantasy who read it and I won the World Fantasy Award. So suddenly I was definitely within the genre, and people who then read it as a result of that said, oh, well, this is horror. And ever since then, I've been a horror writer. Well, but I, I never really thought that was ever... I mean, I'm, I'm delighted by it, because mm-hmm. my sense of humor is fairly horrific, but, you know, it's, it's mean, a lot. But
0: setting aside issues of value judgment, judgment about being described as writers of horror, yeah, how much is it is that that's what you actually feel you write, <clears> and how much of it do you think that's the way it's interpreted through a lens of genre? You know... People come to it from that perspective and decide yeah. that's what it is.
2: I uh, I had an interesting experience where um, I was sent two reviews yesterday and uh, both of them picked out stories they liked and stories that they didn't like from the collection but interestingly they both picked out exactly the opposite ones. One review said these are the best ones, the mm. other review said oh. these are the worst ones and I think that's, it's because
1: That's got to be a nice feeling. It's, it's be- <laughs> And I found
2: that with my uh, first collection as well. Is Some people said Helen wisely weighted all of the good stories to the first half of the collection and another review said Helen very wisely weighted all of the good stories to the second half of the collection. <laughs> and I think what it is is that my stuff tends to cut between literary and genre and somebody who comes from a slightly more literary side won't find as much that they like in the genre stories and somebody who comes more from a genre side won't find as much that they like in the literary stories.
3: Yeah, I mean part of the fun for me is I think if you do a collection as well I don't want the reader going into the story to be quite aware whether this is going to be Comical, weird, or horrific, and, and 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 I think most of writing is is a game you play with the audience. It's about trying to manage and um, throw their expectations of things. So I I find the unnerving thing about going into a story sometimes not being aware whether this is going to go into a into a very very dark area or whether actually it's going to pick up and actually and cheer up again. So I I rather like the idea that people might go into. So, I mean I mean I write some stories very, very definitely thinking, Well this is actually fairly unpleasant and I think this goes into rather nasty horror imagery. Other times I think that's what people think it will be yeah. and then you reverse it and you find something which actually which is more uplifting or much more personal. I mean I always hope that they're that they're quite emotional. I mean I mean I think that's what I I always find in your stories too, Helen, is that yeah. is that you feel whatever the imagery you're playing with, they feel like they're actually about emotional personal emotional things, yeah, and it, not just saying, I've got a really, really lovely image of stories too, Helen, is that, yeah. is that you feel whatever the imagery you're playing with, they feel like they're actually about emotional, personal emotional things, yeah, and it, not just saying, I've got a really, really lovely image of, I don't know, some big dead eyeball, <laughs> which is actually one I'm, curr- <laughs> don't, don't, which don't. I'm currently playing with as an idea, you see, so that's why. I, emotional. Personal, emotional things, yeah, and it, not just saying I've got a really, really lovely image of I don't know some big dead eyeball, <laughs> which is actually one I'm com- don't, don't, don't. which I'm currently playing with as an idea. You see, so that's why
1: I, you have you have to find eyeballs in my head. Fifty-seven horror yeah. movie called The Crawling Eye, <laughs> which, is ti- <laughs> which is wonderful. It's a great title. Which is wonderful. It's, it's, it's a, a great title. It's a great. It is about a giant crawling eyeball in the alps of all places it takes place at a <laughs> ski resort and the people are trapped in the ski lodge with an eye coming at them yeah it, it,
2: It's how, wonderful. so like, strange how Did does the eye that? how
3: does the eye damage them i mean it's you know i mean i mean strange. how does Did you the you eye that? how does the eye damage them i mean it's a you know i mean and i mean, I mean a does, steely it, glare, does right? it lash them with the optic nerve i mean <laughs> that'd be quite funny
1: um, it's, it's one of those things eyes can't eat can the eye gets really close to the camera and then Cuts to somebody screaming, and then it cuts to a different scene. You
3: don't know. I mean, I would probably, to be fair, if I were, I, I, if, like, hey, if I were in the, ass, and then, and then the biggest giant eye coming at me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would probably be screaming quite, quite a bit. But I'm not sure actually what, what actual threat the eye would impose. And of course, but, but I think that's... <laughs>
2: But that's the thing about yeah. horror anyway, is sometimes a thing doesn't yeah. actually have to be it, it, able to threaten you, sense. just the weirdness of it no, it's, is, it's, it's is the always... Idea.
3: In my bedroom, I had um, uh, a, a window and my parents had to cover it up with the curtains all the time and I was always terrified that if I opened up the window, that through one of the panes of glass, I'd see something different to the other panes of glass, you know, you'd looking out wow. in the garden. And, and that, and the idea of that, I mean, I wouldn't dare go to the, I don't know where the idea of that came from, but when I was like seven years old, I became convinced that if I were to open up the curtains, and I looked through at the garden, from that different vista of one pane, it would be different. And yeah. I'd say, I could look at any panes in case that would prove to be the case, because that would scare me. In the same way that, but that my parents did this thing, I mean, actually, it was frightening. They uh, stripped the wallpaper mm-hmm. in my bedroom when I was a kid, and... As they did it, I was watching, this, this red writing began to... Uh, it's honestly true. And, and, the red, and the writing just said, in, you know, it was red paint, Fred's room. Oh. And, 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 and they never explained that to me until... Because I was terrified of that. And then they put yeah. some new wallpaper up. And I thought, what, what the hell is that? And apparently it was simply that when my parents bought the house, they were allocating the rooms... My father, who never meant to call me Fred, he just that was his sense of humor, said, "Well all right, well, this will be uh, the, the, you know with the other kid, yeah, Fred's room, <laughs> the, but i but I had this idea of Fred still being a presence in the room with me, <laughs> me. and that there was some you know some <laughs> sort of lingering you know he was probably an, an, an earlier son who went mad
1: or an <laughs> earlier iteration of yourself, yeah. yes,
3: so so I began suddenly very, very terrified of anything under a wall, under wallpaper uh-huh. and it, and it, and it was that sort of thing about just finding that. The thing which really scared me suddenly was the idea I'd take off wallpaper and find a door.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean that
3: oh so things like Lion which and the wardrobe scared me as a child because I hated the idea. Other other children at school loved the idea, yeah. open up a wardrobe and there'd be a magical world inside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What scared me was the wardrobe back would be something which didn't make sense. And it wasn't actually so much mm-hmm. that there'd be a world, it was more that there'd be no space for that world, so that was a dissonance that my mind couldn't compute with. Mm-hmm. It's why I still have problems with things like motion simulators. I find them quite scary. I don't I don't like the idea that what I'm seeing is what my senses tell me can't be true. So I find those things actually always rather unnerve me.
2: Yeah, I um, had uh, not, well, I didn't have a similar experience to that as a child, but I found that many of my fears were, were just about um, something in the world not being the way that I had been told it was, and that if, if the rules don't work, then, then suddenly anything could be true. And for me, that was I guess that kind of chaos was really, really scary. I really, uh, Alice in Wonderland, that was the thing that scared me as a yeah. child because I found it so uh, creepy. And the fact that, every, mm-hmm. that there's a sense of logic to it, you can, you can feel that there is something mm-hmm. going on that makes sense, but you're completely unaware of what the rules are and how it, how it works. And that, for me, I found really, really scary. I
1: used to ask my students in class, and I teach adult students, so they tend to be in their 40s, what the scariest thing they remembered in movies from childhood was. And over years of doing this, what came out as the most frightening, disturbing thing they ever saw was Bambi. Hmm. Oh, yeah. When the mother dies? The mother dies. Yeah. Yeah. Because the death of a mother inflames. I mean, all the things that terrify kids. You know, you're losing your mother, you're in a fire, you're alone, you're abandoned. And it it just traumatized a whole generation of people who saw it in, what, 1940, I think is when it came
3: out. It's the basis of of a novel I'm working on. It's actually about... Bambi about Bambi's mother dying it's about it's about that as being a trigger for um collective grief and about what happens if um it's actually when it was, I was, it was when I first met you I was flying back from Perth in 2008 yeah. and they they had Bambi on yeah um and it was one of those great fights where you could rewind and fast forward TV so I watched on a loop because it because I just love that I mean, I mean, not in a sort of, <laughs> hey, no. Bambi's mother's death. But actually, because it always moves me so much. I watched the, the that whole sequence where Bambi escapes from the hunters and looks around and the mother isn't there anymore. And he meets his father for the first time who says... And, and, and there's that amazing moment where Bambi just looks down. And when he looks up again, he's now effectively an adult mm. and I would just sit there and I and I cried and I played it, played it on, a, on a loop and I cried and eventually the person next to me actually did call the this is honestly true called the stewardess because he assumed that there was something really really wrong I just said well, I'm, just, I'm just watching Bambi's mother dying oh and, my, oh I, I, and, and, and she said could you maybe stop doing that because actually you're, you're actually scaring people around um, because they think that maybe it's because you're frightened of air travel so I stopped watching that but the thing is is that I found that I became obsessed with the idea of what would happen if when I got off, because I was, it was a long flight, Um, and I I remember actually at one point going to sleep, um, and I, for some reason, I I sort of froze it at that moment, and when I woke up again, we were coming into land, and it wouldn't play anymore, And and I had this idea that I may have broken the movie. And I'd get off the plane and bam, his mother actually would have survived the film. And it would have been a different interpretation. So I, I began working at that point. I mean, I've ever, for the last few years I've been planning that out as a novel about how that death in in that movie affects American culture and how that affects other cultures around it, which is a, a weird pitch. It's a I, I, but, it's, it's, but it's also because it is such an influential moment. I mean, mm-hmm. when I first, I mean, my growing, I mean, for a lot of children, I think Disney is their... Is their means into horror I mean Snow White and Seven so. Dwarfs yeah. is terrifying for, for a small child I think I mean it, it was for me um, Pinocchio there's this wonderfully horrific moment in Pinocchio where you've just got this child's been turned into a donkey mm-hmm.
0: and he's mm-hmm. crying
3: for yeah. his mother and you know and whoever it is it's not Strombogi it's one of those characters that yeah. says you'll never see your mother again and he never will, because there's no let out for him. Mm-hmm. That's horrifying. Mm. And, that's, and, and that's the actual beauty of those things, It's the idea that you can't... You know, that there is actually such great loss when you're a child. So yeah, I maybe mean, Bambi's mother is such a tremendous mother.
1: Well, before, before Disney became, I don't know, influenced by the modern notions of child psychology, there was a sense in all the Disney movies that genuine evil existed and it genuinely oh, yeah. meant you ill... Yeah. And if you, and it, it's going to probably get you at some point during your life, and you may or may not get away. Mm. I mean, I was wondering, Ellen, did you, what, did you have weird stories like that about where you get an idea for fiction from? Uh,
2: I, I, uh, Rob and I often wander around to museums together, yeah. and we just, uh, we just give each other crazy kind of uh, what if ideas. Uh, I did that. I did that a lot more. I think with the f- with my first collection, because more of them are sort of surreal. I don't want to call them gimmick stories, but if I I could I could compress them into essentially kind of a joke, the way that Rob oh. was talking. So I had one story about uh, a woman who discovers a lost manuscript of Jane Austen on the inside of her skin.
1: I read that one. <laughs> and
2: yes. and that always struck me as just a very funny idea uh, because. What I like is uh, taking something absurd. Oh, one of them, uh, I wrote a story called the uh, Zanel Adler Brass Spyglass. And that was one that I came up with. Rob and I were Mm. talking about ideas. And we were talking about the idea of telescopes and how when you look into space, you can see into the past. Mm. And uh, I said, okay, what about a story about a little boy uh, who becomes fixated on his divorced parents? And so he keeps looking back into his old, his parents' bedroom Mm. to try to see the moment when he was conceived. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah
2: and uh, so it started off in my head as it was going to be a very funny story, but it ends up becoming a story about uh, him trying to figure out what went wrong in his parents' marriage and yeah. why they've broken up and him believing desperately that uh, it was one of his parents uh, that it was his mother who <clears throat> cheated and so he's not he, he's not actually his father's son at all he belongs to somebody else and then um, then at the end realizing, that they were together at that mm-hmm. moment and how he has to then reconcile the fact that sometimes things just fall apart mm-hmm. and how does he then, how does he then pursue a relationship with his father after having felt this kind of deep disappointment and then actually being disappointed about the fact he can't feel that anymore.
1: Hmm.
3: Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: is, okay, the fun. question is, uh, uh, because that lack of feeling it is, is a kind of horror that people like Kafka could certainly get at. Yeah. I mean, a couple of ideas that I think is a problem, because when you talk about blending genres, which we talk about a lot here, uh, I know people get tired of it, but we do. But we, we, we talk about blending genres because we're out of terms. The traditional terms we have, uh, and horror is probably preeminent among them, mm-hmm. don't work anymore. That's uh, right. There was an essay, uh, Locust Magazine did a horror issue a few years ago, and we asked Peter Straub to write a short essay. And the point of his essay, the title of his essay, was horror is a house that horror has moved out of. Yeah. Mm. And because he was certainly one of the pioneers of what we now call literary horror, Yeah. but the problem I always had, just as being academic for a second, is that of all the popular genres that emerged, at least in the States, but probably around the world, science fiction and mysteries clearly is a genre named after plot forms. Mm -hmm. Westerns is a genre named after settings. Horror is the only one of them that's named after a supposed affect, and even romance is not considered. Well, there are tearjerkers, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, s- somebody actually wrote uh, an essay saying, talking about body genres. Uh, body genres are genres of writing in which you have a physiological response. Comedy oh, is the pr- right. Comedy and pornography are the two easiest examples. Yeah. But horror became something like that. Um, and it's really inadequate to describe what people have been doing for the The kinds of stories you're talking about are more like what we used to call uncanny stories. Yeah, Yeah,
2: and I think, I find the the definition of horror and the idea of affect and whether it's an emotion or a set of tropes really, really interesting Mm -hmm. because it's not even just that it's, it's about an emotion but it's also where the emotion comes because if you, Bambi starts off with horror and then it moves somewhere else. So you wouldn't call it a horror story. And what I find sometimes frustrating about the genre, if you go in to write a horror story, is it means that your your ending is almost predicated by what the genre is. You know <laughs> that the story has to end with this kind of affect. And that's why I resist sometimes horror uh, yeah. because you don't want the reader to know no, it's it's exactly not. what you were talking about. Where you want you want the reader to not know what genre they're in until they exactly. read the, yeah. the story.
3: it's mean, part of the fun I have, and, and and you do the same thing. I know is that is that you have the idea for a story which might very well be termed a horror story, mm. and then you reach that that typical climax, and then you say, and then what? And actually, you realise that what you saw in your head when you came up with the idea was being you know, maybe the ending point is actually maybe no more than a third of the way through the story. And actually after that you find the really interesting things where you're actually dealing with with the um, uh, consequences of what, of what you did. Mm-hmm. And, actually, and then you, uh, often the story smooths out and becomes something actually which is either lighter or funnier or certainly much more emotional, but also often less surreal. And, yeah. you, and, you, and you start normalising the world after a moment of something which which actually feels... Surreal or, or quite terrible, and actually, then you reach something which I find much, much richer. It's actually, I mean, you know, to go back to Bambi, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. the thing which I love about Bambi is that you go from that moment of Bambi's mother's being killed, and then suddenly they're all talking about being twitter or falling mm-hmm. in love. <laughs> and, and and yet and yet you still. I mean, I've seen it in the cinema with children, and the children are still yeah. crying. And yet and yet and yet you see you suddenly. But also, there's actually a horror even to that because it's um, it's like suddenly seeing all these characters who you dearly loved, uh-huh. and they're now several years older. So they they have different voices and they look different. And you suddenly realise even in the movie. Um, uh, young Thumper who everybody loves mm. is now actually annoying adult Thumper and actually <laughs> sure. even he's dead because because because, because everyone you, you cared about has now moved on and yet they're talking about all falling in love and doing an annoying song and the owl gets it gets very irritated. But I'm not quite sure my point is on that. <laughs> I,
2: I, think, I think genre is really interesting because basically it basically gives you a beginning point and an end point so if you look at uh, Shakespeare's Winter's Tale for example mm. which starts off uh, as what would otherwise be a tragedy and then moves into a kind of comedy with a nice resolution Mm -hmm. but if you if you change the time scale on that play and you started it off you could very easily have things started off where you have uh leontes meeting his wife and turn it into a romance just depending on where you stop the story Mm -hmm. and that's what i find interesting about genre genre sort of is about where you decide to stop speaking anymore yeah yeah
1: (laughs) you leave the reader there's another term well to get back to the uncanny because this sounds a little bit like I think part of what was going on the uncanny as it's used now is a Freudian term but the Freudian term was das unheimlich uh, which literally means Mm unhomelike and a friend of mine I'm, I'm, I'm not going to take credit I'm not going to take the blame for this but a friend of mine trying to describe what modern uncanny writers do and what you just described is what he calls the unheimlich maneuver that's, That's Brian uh, Avery, That's not me. Yeah. I would like to steal that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't.
3: make it up. No, it's. It, I. I think that that is. The, that is the thing. I mean, I remember. I mean, you mentioned Winter's Tale, and I mem- no. and, and I. I'm. I'm a bit of a Shakespeare fan. If I hadn't become a writer, I would probably be teaching mm. Shakespeare at university. That was always the idea. And I remember reading Winter's Tale when I was 13, 14 years old, and I thought I'd do on a Shakespeare kick uh-huh. and being annoyed by it. Because it was a story in which the turns out at the end that you know because it starts all very as you say very uh, tragic it's it's obviously a fellow sped up and then suddenly the wife isn't dead she's been living as a statue for the last seventeen years and and I just thought oh come on there's no way that will make sense and as I get older. What attracts me to Winterstone, what attracts me to, to fiction in general is where you're saying, it doesn't have to. The point you're trying to make is is actually an emotional one. Mm. And of course, I'm now drawn to stories in which you might say, and then his wife, to punish him, stayed as a statue well, you, for you, 17 you years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, why not? The
1: professors had problems with the winter, but They had problems with all the late plays. Oh, yeah. Because, because once you've you know organized, and I don't know who did it to... Harrison or somebody once you've organized everything into tragedies comedies and histories and you get to things like The Winter's Tale you can get to The Tempest which are just weird experiments they're just weird yeah. it's just that's weird. right yeah. and, and
3: it's, it's that wonderful thing that I uh, my my father had um, a collection of the complete Shakespeare's he bought in the States when he lived um, over. Uh, he lived in New York in the 1960s and he bought at that point, a rather nice looking complete works of William Shakespeare, which had prefaces which were generally apologising more and more that <laughs> these plays don't work. Yeah. And you read them now and, and, it, and it hates things like The Winter State. It hates yeah, right. Titus Andronicus, which of course is an early, very petty oh, yeah. tragedy, it's saying this is so crude and so unpleasant. Well, there's a, obviously that wouldn't be the accent. But um, <laughs> but, 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 it, but, but the thing is, is that I find that those you know I mean it's easy, I think, when you start to say, I, I get Hamlet, that's a very, very straightforward story. It takes an age to get to the end, but that's part of the uh-huh. point. When you start actually I think that what genre is 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 it saying, I can bend this, I can tell this this mm-hmm. this tale. And then suddenly, as in I mean, my favourite is Cymbeline which is bonkers. Mm-hmm. I mean it's utterly bonkers. It plays on the idea of being everything at once you'll you'll have a sequence where somebody wakes up and the person next to them's head falls off because it's been cut <laughs> off while 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 she was asleep right. which you know is not traditional comedy <laughs> and yet around it you'll have these wonderfully funny scenes and it's actually a happy ending it's a romance it, it, it was shakespeare effectively at that point saying you know what you know back in 1611 saying I'm not going to be high bound to the idea of, of, of what genre is either. Yeah. I'm going to blur these things as much as I possibly can and actually see what comes out of it. I, I think what's fascinating about approaching stories the way that you know, that, that Helen does and what I try oh. and bounce off with Helen as well is saying what happens if you do press that button at the wrong moment in the story and see yeah. what kind yeah. of story comes out of it because because I actually don't like now. I, I, I find myself seeing so much of the rhythm of traditional storytelling at times just allowing you to say it's it's rather like watching really bad sitcoms on tv which we have a lot of in britain mm-hmm. where the audience laugh not now actually at what mm-hmm. is being said but at the rhythmic expectation that this must now be a joke mm-hmm. and you hear the joke and you say actually that's not even funny what's funny about it <clears> is that you now know this must be a punchline so you laugh anyway and what is good is actually removing sometimes what that punchline should be and doing something different.
1: That explains why so many of you, my British friends could watch Benny Hill. <laughs> and I couldn't. I couldn't. Because it's nothing but rhythm. No, that's just because yeah. you've it's got actually... taste, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: but that's right, No, it is just rhythm. And, and, it, and it's, it's, there was a sort of revolution about that. in. Uh, there was a wonderful show called The Fast Show, mm-hmm. which uh, was a sketch show, which very, very bravely did sketches terribly quickly about Mm -hmm. 30 second sketches removing all context from them except here is the Mm punchline knowing full well that up until episode three or four as you're watching it where they just repeat the same jokes every every week they're not funny at all until actually eventually they they become funny simply through repetition Mm -hmm. So, so you see you start watching sketches which only have one sentence in them you think why am I watching that? And it becomes, collectively, mm-hmm. one of the funniest things you ever see, so long as you stick with it and say, this is all only now about rhythm. It's funny because rhythmically we are being told now whatever they say mm-hmm. will be funny. It's very, very clever. I mean, I'm making it sound well, but much, also, much, much you're, worse you're, than it is. You're also making
1: but, it sound like there's a very fine line between horror and comedy. I think that's true.
3: I, 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 think, it, I think that the only two things I can think of where... As you write them, you are trying to elicit often an actual verbal response. You know, I mean, um, we we've just done um, Orlando together as well, and, and and I thought what was great about Magic Kingdom was when we both came down that fifty-two foot drop at Splash Mountain, how we both just laughed our heads off, and it's the way in which I thought about when I watch horror movies you get some, something shocking happen and the audience collectively laughs, with, laughs in relief mm-hmm. that they were all shocked by it and, and, and all how silly they now feel. Yeah. And comedy and horror, I mean, you know, if, I mean, most forms of writing don't try and pretend that, that they want you to actually have a gasp moment. And comedy is a gasp and horror is a gasp. And mm-hmm. I think that they're very, very closely allied there. It's about having the right position shock. And it can be a shock for mm. laughs or scares. It doesn't yeah. matter
2: and it's interesting because a lot of it is about how how long you stay in a particular moment because we've talked about this before one of the interesting things about jokes is jokes tend to be very very violent Mm -hmm. and but they're also reassuring because they tell you when it's over and they tell you what your response should be but it's interesting when you just when you linger in that moment for longer but horror works the opposite way if you linger in a horrific moment too long then sometimes it turns really funny. Mm -hmm. I I was watching an interview that uh, the people who did Game of Thrones were giving and they were saying that one of the hardest things that they had to uh, manage very carefully was all of the violence in the show because Mm. if they didn't cut away at the right time on a particularly gory scene, like the difference of holding the camera for one second longer would turn it from something shocking into something really really funny (laughs) it's really easy to go over Mm. that line and I think that in some ways the Red Wedding I think did that a little bit, It, it sometimes went too far and then it because it, then you get that kind of, uh, you know, the, the slasher horror moment yeah. where there's so much gore in it that the way that people react is they kind of just go, they, they sort of back off from it and just mm-hmm. start laughing. And I think that it's interesting that when horror goes on too far, it becomes comedy, mm-hmm. and when comedy goes on too far, it becomes horror. Well, the thing yeah. is, and, and the, th-
1: the funny thing is that um, Tex Avery knew that. The people who did Warner Brothers cartoons in the 40s completely knew that. Because mm-hmm. if somebody is beaten with a mallet, it's, it, they're just beaten into the ground, and there's nothing. But it's, it you start. The first blow is like a, a reaction is like horror, but then they, they know that's comedy. They know that if somebody is trampled. Yeah. The, the, they know that if Roadrunner, if, if Wile e. Coyote gets blown up violently enough, it's always comedic. Yeah,
2: and it was in, we, as Rob said, we just came back from Disney, and we were reading a guidebook after we had been to Disney, oh. which had all of which had uh, reactions from parents about how their kids handled various rides, mm-hmm. and it was interesting to see what would cause children to freak out in rides that we went on, and we thought this is perfectly fine. So we went to one on uh, the Bug's Life and the comment was was that it had become this kind of horror hell show, and all of the children <laughs> in the auditorium were screaming. And it's this little comedy routine that the bugs are doing up on stage, and it gets interrupted, and then there's sort of a giant spider dropping down from the ceiling. But it all seemed to both of us very, very gentle, but... The children don't know that they ought to be reassured by things, so they experience everything so viscerally that they they don't know that they're that it's going to be safe and it's all going to turn out all right Well yeah I mean this is it I mean
3: I mean I don't have children um. And maybe just as well, because I probably would do it, do it to experiment.
1: <laughs> I, I
3: would say, well, well, let's take a three-year-old to the Magic Kingdom and have him meet a giant mouse, and let's just see actually just how much that freaks his mind. Because, because again, that that's you know you aren't knowing that this is actually a, a thing of charm until you're old enough, I think, to acquire yeah. a degree of this this particular dissonance from the world is okay. is something which actually is funny and nice as opposed to something actually which is threatening and hostile and makes me now want to to dive into my mother's arms. And that's
2: an interesting uh, difference between fantasy and horror because at the beginning I was saying that uh, what I didn't like as a child was uh, the sense that the rules don't work the way that you're supposed to. And yet fantasy does that all the time. Fantasy says you walk through this closet, Mm -hmm. you're in a magical world. And I loved that. But, so there's a weird kind of line in that sometimes it's, sometimes it's reassuring and, and creates a sense of adventure and wonder, but other times uh, it just it collapses everything you know in a really, really shocking and frightening way.
3: Yeah. I mean, I mean there's a story I wrote for I suppose, my first book, and I, mm. I remember phoning up my father. I, I, need to, I need some help with it. It was a story about a woman who starts giving birth to furniture. <laughs> She's only just got married. And, um, and, they, and they've moved into this fairly small flat and it's the reaction mostly, I mean, I mean the husband is just cross because all the furniture that she produces isn't, isn't useful to them because they live in too small a place mm. and he can't understand why she can't just, you know, if she's going to breed furniture, if she's going to propagate furniture, why she can't uh-huh. produce something a, a bit more helpful to them. And, 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 and it's quite a funny story but it's also, and I thought it was quite funny, you know mm-hmm. and and then he starts auctioning bits of furniture that she produces she was you to think maybe something's wrong with the relationship that he cares more about mm-hmm. that than he does about her um and I phoned my father and I just wanted I wanted Riggy to check what an escritoire was because i I knew he'd no, it's a <laughs> form of writing desk and I, and I told him what the story was uh, <laughs> it was his long pause and and he was and I thought he was going to be amused or even a bit shocked. He was actually genuinely offended and horrified. Really? And what he said was, but, but the amount of physical pain. So you're saying that someone will produce a sofa from their stomach. And I said, but, but part of the fun, Dad, is that I actually, I know i a story and I say, you know, this is an impossible image. I'm not actually ever asking, I never describe. And then she opens her legs and this force, stretches her out I just say she then produces a sofa and he says but I cannot not imagine Mm -hmm. that process and I said but that's part of the fun is that it's between A and B not actually connecting and that's where the strange absurdism lies Mm. if you actually were to focus if you did a story which focused upon somebody who against their will is starting to give birth to skyscrapers Gee, I might do that. <laughs> um, then, then that's going to, be, you know, the amount of. Oh my God, that would be un- un- unpleasant, obviously. <laughs> and, and yet, and yet, that's and, that, and, and yet for some audiences, and for my father in that instance he he wanted to rationalize you know and yeah. that that's, the, and that's that's actually what makes it that's really the, that's
2: the most fun though with with playing with an absurd image because i found in the, the story that i did about the woman who finds the jane austen mm-hmm. manuscript written on the inside of her skin that for me the the moment that i enjoyed the most was when she decided she wanted to transcribe it and so she sort of takes her cell phone mm-hmm. and is taking pictures of it inside her shoulder and then she, she she's trying to figure out how to take a shower because if the water gets in, then what's going to happen? And so she sort of tries mm. to, like, tape down a, a plastic bag or something over this hole in her shoulder. And what's great about it is that it's it's both funny and it's horrific. And it just depends on how much realism you want to, to force into an absurd image. And exactly, exactly, exactly right. what you're, you're, what you're talking about.
3: It's, it's, about. it's it's, often, about, it's yeah. often about a matter-of-fact reaction to something which you know yeah. shouldn't be matter-of-fact. Yeah. And actually, and that's actually what often makes it strangely funnier, but also strangely much more, more much more disturbing. Because
2: because it is all in the writer's hand to say, this is the part that's going to be real, the rest of it will overlook.
3: I mean, part of the fun. I mean, you know, I wrote a story called, called Luxembourg. And it's about what mm. happens when someone wakes up, you know, and the world wakes up to the, the fact that overnight the, the the small landlocked country in Europe called Luxembourg has vanished. Mm. And no one really cares. <laughs> <it's any Luxembourg. laughs> and in fact, it's taken for okay. days for so anyone to notice, because, you know, it's such a small country, no one even cared. It's a woman popping over the border to buy a pint of milk, who says, oh, it seems to have gone. <laughs> and the, but the story is actually about a woman whose husband was on a business trip in Luxembourg, mm. No longer re- you know, And she's not reacting with tremendous horror at the idea of, of, of all physical laws being broken. It's, it's not knowing whether to now be able to grieve for him because is he dead or alive? Mm-hmm. And can she now move on with her life? And that's a story really about that. And again, I'm, I'm not attacking my father. My, my, <laughs> but my father's problem was saying, but, but I really don't understand how... I made a joke in it that the woman going across the border said, oh, it's all right, I'll, I'll just go and get a pint in Antwerp. And he said, oh, no. Antwerp's too far from the border of Luxembourg, really, for that to be a sensible journey for her. And oh, I said, yeah. I've just vanished a country of the, of the face of the earth. I don't care about the local geography of it. Yeah. And yet, you know, there are, there are certain things that you break and, and you bend mm. for comic effect. It's, it's having... I think the fantastic element is often not the actual you know the actual moment of saying and now spiders drop from the sky it's about actually saying how do people respond to that do they mm-hmm. respond as yeah. we would by by freaking or oh, do the, they say yeah. well we can adjust to these spiders dropping from the mm-hmm. sky but it's a bit irritating that they're taking up all of our you know supermarket space well or it's
2: it's interesting when we were talking about uh, horror and affect because a lot of horror theory talks about the idea that uh, the reader or the watcher identifies with the protagonist who's exactly. suffering. And actually, what both Rob and I do that is very interesting is we do the opposite. We take a horrific moment and we have the protagonist not react at all. And what it does is it forces all of the reaction onto the, the audience. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. That's very clear. Yeah. This there's something that takes me back to the absurdist theater of the '50s and '60s, and uh, because that sort of thing worked there in various ways. I mean, UNESCO's Rhinoceros, for example. Yeah. There's a very funny, absurd play, except the people in the play are horrified by it. Absolutely. And so, then, is it a horror story, or is it uh, a comedy? And the other thing your furniture story reminded me of is a very early Richard Lester film called The Bed-Sitting Room.
3: Yes. Um, yeah.
1: Which is about a guy... It's a post-nuclear... It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's an anti-nuclear movie. It's, but a guy is just turning into a bed-sitting room through the course of the movie. <laughs> <there's> no explanation <laughs> of it at all.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. It's
1: fantastic. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> it, it, it's part for me, it's it's about the... And I think it's a, I think it's a real reaction. I think it's the nonchalant way that people find themselves adapting to the most appalling conditions if you let them have time to do so. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we went through turbulence yesterday and people were, were shocked. And I thought, if this goes on for a, another hour, people will start saying, oh, I don't really care anymore if we am going to crash or not. And then they'll start yeah. carrying on with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. If you... You, you, I mean, it's the most awful example of of, of great tyranny. Mm-hmm. That if you just tell people over and over again, you know, this is actually how society is going to work, even though actually you'll wake up every day and you'll be in appalling pain. You say, mm-hmm. "Yeah, but I get, I, but I get that between the hours of four and five not to be in pain. That's not a bad way of dealing with it." Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I find if you do a fantasy setting, and you're what you're really doing, as you say, Helen, you know, is you're actually forcing the reader. To be trying to sort of um, rebel against yeah. what other people have just mm-hmm. somehow managed to put up
2: with. They have to react on behalf of the people who
1: aren't reacting. Yeah,
3: I, I, I find that actually quite scary and, and actually, so, and actually but, rather funny. So, what you're saying is point. your
1: father was doing what readers should do. Absolutely. He was, he yeah. was reacting to. <laughs> he just what didn't what realize. Did. Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I I feel bad now. <laughs> I, I, I so, no, you've just not.
0: told everybody that your father was really a good reader.
3: Yeah, absolutely, which is very important.
0: Yeah. Do, do you think you're writing towards the point, uh, towards a point when you're writing a story where you're just before the moment where what's happening in the story becomes normalised?
3: Sometimes. Yeah. I mean the thing is, is that I think that that moment is always a very, very important moment to, to judge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, um, I don't like stories that stray ever and ever further from a vantage point where actually we can yeah. feel that that we actually have some some connection with it um I think that it's great to start a story to have a story actually which goes into very very strange places but you want to find a way actually of, of taking the reader still to a point where they still feel that there is some sort of line which is attaching them to it mm. and I think mm. I mean I mean I don't like stories much which have a reset button
0: yeah
3: um but I want to sort of actually make the reader feel that Nevertheless, that that world which you've changed mm. is a world that they can still recognizably be part of if that makes sense yeah i yeah.
2: I, I wrote a story called uh, Blessed in Hairside Fleshside, which was about uh, a young girl whose parents are divorced and uh, her her father and her stepmother give her uh, the body of Saint. Lucia of Syracuse <laughs> for her birthday, and they sneak it in early and then her mother gets really upset by this because she got, because she got a present from them first and then gets her the body of Joan of Arc, <laughs> <laughs> they sort of have this competing competition uh, about who's, who's going to give her the best saint. And what I, <laughs> what I really liked about the story is it's that it's, it starts off as a really comedic story mm. and then about halfway through it starts to switch because it turn it it, it pivots around the idea of what martyrdom is, and the fact that that martyrs themselves have this this weird kind of dualism to their very concept—the idea mm. that they're both uh, blessed by God and uh, and people to be emulated, but they're also the people who have suffered the most, and mm. and that the way that they have been shown favor by God is through uh, through pain, through being mm. tortured, and so it, it it then picks up on this idea of the child then in this tug of war between mm. the parents uh, suffering love as a kind of pain from them and so she becomes a martyr and it, and it becomes about how whether or not yeah. she accepts that love but the absurd, the absurdism I find uh, and I mean I, I my background is in poetry originally mm. I like taking metaphors and then playing on different valences so you think the metaphor is going to be one thing and you realize there's this seed of another story that's always been embedded on it and then you switch it halfway through and yeah. you say this story was actually about something else. And, and sometimes that fun.
3: whole starting point, I mean I, I wrote a story for you Jonathan recently, yes. uh, the ice in the bedroom story, yes. which I, which strangely I got the idea of that when I was staying with Helen in Toronto and I had this dream and I woke up <laughs> that it was, a, I suddenly just imagined that I'd wake up and my bed would be on this um, ice flow, you know, and there'd be nothing in the distance and that whatever I did to move out on the bed was just causing cracks on the ice. And I had about a year or so of trying to work out the story, and, just, and I, it was actually when I realised that that wasn't the actual pivot of the story. It was, just as, it was something within oh. it, but it wasn't where you start from. Oh. It was actually the emotional thing which is around that story that I could find a way of writing it. Mm-hmm. And also, because I really hate dream stories. I really hate things of being of, being of no consequence. Mm-hmm. Dream imagery always seems rather lazy mm-hmm. to me, because anything can happen in a dream, and you can say oh and then I had this weird dream in which I don't know, a spider was the size of a Buick or and you think well, well we'll just tell this yeah. story with size, a spider the size of a Buick then yeah. but with that story again it, mm. it was trying to find as is always the way, what actually makes this feel like it beats you know, that yeah. there's yeah. actually, and, and, and with Blessed, I mean I remember when you told me that story when you were writing it, and I thought well, yeah that's a funny story, and but I also thought at the back of my head but why, mm-hmm. and then when I read it I know exactly why, it's a story, of, it's, a, it's a horrifying story about emotional abuse, yeah. and about people mm. fighting over the remnants of, of actually what's been destroyed in a marriage, it's wonderful.
2: But one of the interesting things I've, that both of us do is um, when I read that story out loud, you can tell if you can get pe- if you can get the audience mm. laughing in the first five minutes, then you can do devastating things mm. to them in the next 15 minutes. And I learned that from watching Rob do readings because Rob's readings are often really, really funny. And then there's this moment where it's like the floor drops out from underneath yeah. you, and yeah, uh, it's great fun doing that. It's, isn't yeah, it? because you can you can hear yeah. that stillness that comes over the audience when you suddenly. Switch tones, mm-hmm. and you move from the kind of jocular, uh, the, your kittenish gait
1: to uh...
3: as, as you've quoted in the book. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's a strange thing. I mean, I mean, but that's but but I, as I say I began in theatre, and I wrote a play mm. back in '92 which did very well. It won me that year the Sunday Times Playwriting Award, and it, it got my career going. And it was a play called Easy Laughter, and it was set at a time. Um, it, it, it was it was a Christmas play. And and it was a family Christmas, and there are lots of terrible things going on, but people seem to laugh at it anyway. And you would have the audience sitting in traverse, so they'd be facing each other. And only actually during Act 2 to become more and more clear, it's not only a celebration of the birth of Jesus, but also, from their point of view, the successful extermination of the race that they thought killed him. So it becomes Mm. a comedy and it becomes funnier and funnier. Mm. And it was actually seeing the moment when different members of the audience would get angry with each other that they still found this thing funny. Mm-hmm. And it's about playing with the idea of when does comedy start and stop. And right. I love doing that. You know, if, if you're reading a short story aloud, um, I think it's great fun to always make it some sort of strange journey for the audience about, about how to interpret what's going on. And starting, I mean, they always relax. If you, mm-hmm. if you make it funny to begin with, then they just think, oh, that's great, and they settle back and they and they and they and they laugh at everything long beyond the point actually when they really should be.
1: this yeah. tremendous fun. Yeah, there was a reading once when I was at the University of Kansas by Joseph Heller. He was reading from Catch-22 at a time when a lot of people had not read the novel. Yeah. Uh, and one of the running jokes from the beginning of the novel is a, a, a comment that Yossarian keeps making: "Where are the Snowdens of yesteryear?" And it's it's, it's a it's a takeoff on you know where. Where are the snows, of yesterday he, th- he even does it in French. I mean, he does it via uh, And so you're, you every time this comes up, you're laughing. And then he, he, he took those early segments, which were just hilarious, as Catch-22 is, and then read the scene where Snowden dies, and you find out what this is referring to. Yeah. Which is a scene in which yeah. Snowden is the tail gunner in this bomber, and he's been wounded by flak, and Yosarian is packing all the sulfa into this horrible wound, mm-hmm. and and. And then Snowden keeps saying, I'm cold. And then, and then Snowden points down and he opens his flak jacket and his entrails. He's been treating the wrong wound the whole time. It's utter—it's a pure horror story. It's utterly mm. terrifying. And the entire audience at that point, which had been laughing its head off, was feeling awful about themselves. Yeah, the yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: It's about how complicit you can exactly. make the audience
1: Absolutely. in what you're, right. you're doing.
2: Exactly. And that's what I find interesting. What can you get the audience to buy into? What can you get them to believe? Yeah. And then how, do you, how can you force them to confront whatever it is mm. that they've accepted? Which is what I love about non-realistic or genre fiction is that in the first couple of sentences of a story, you can get them to believe anything because mm-hmm. whatever you're saying is the truth. So I wrote a story about a, a girl in a sorority house who meets death and then falls in love with him. And then at the midpoint of the story, death dies, And uh, Mm -hmm. what I I loved about that was just the idea of you think you know what the rules of the story are, but with a short story at any point you can change the Mm -hmm. rules. And that's that's harder to do in a novel. Uh, Rob was talking about the idea of the longer things go on, the more Mm -hmm. they tend towards realism. And uh, that's what scares me a little bit about writing a novel is that absurdism is hard to maintain for long periods of time, which is why I love short stories. Because you can do so much work in that brief amount of space but you have to continually justify yourself more and more and more Mm -hmm. or else you lose your audience because as you said you can't you can't always force people to be absurd they have to have a connection and also
3: you know I think you have a contract with the reader always I mean you know whatever else we're doing you know and it's Mm. something we often forget to say we're trying to entertain them I mean I do think that's really important I, (laughs) I mean what I want whenever I write anything is that people will finish a story of mine or finish a watching something of mine and they'll say, mm. I enjoyed that, that particular ride. I don't want people to feel that, that they should feel guilty mm. yeah. for having enjoyed it because it suddenly turns out that actually it was nastier than it was. It's actually more about actually seeing what those sort of bumps are. And I think that mm. that that in longer pieces, as you as you say, you know, I mean I find I I didn't intend it. I, I find myself smoothing towards naturalism because actually I find otherwise I, I start to annoy people. I don't want suddenly in chapter seven to say it. Actually, then it turns out that everybody starts dressing up as rabbits, and you think, what? Why? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think you can don't, const- don't yeah, do you that now, yeah. Rob. You Calm down, for God's sake! You, know, you can't
1: constantly introduce new absurdities because can't. I think no, that's right. If, if you have one big absurdity and follow it through, uh, with. Complete internal consistency. I'm thinking because I've been reading James Moore, I'm thinking of his novel towing Jehovah. Yeah. Oh, it's that's right. such it's great. a good book. And it's it's completely absurd. And that, that absurdity stays at the center of the book throughout. Yeah. But everything else is treated, as you say, is. Uh, I I
3: I met James um, James is
1: here. Uh, yeah, we he? see
3: I can see yes. him. I can't uh, I'll wait to you. see him again. Um, I, I didn't realise it was... See, I, was talking, I, I was having dinner. I didn't probably change James rival for now. When I suddenly found out that this was the guy who wrote Towing Jehovah. When I first heard of Towing Jehovah, um, you know, God dies and people are dispatched to tow back his body <laughs> yeah. from where it's been lying in the ocean, I thought, that's a brilliant idea for a short story. Um, I couldn't believe it could be a novel. I couldn't believe it could be a series of three novels. <laughs> yes. it, but, 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 but because he embarks upon it, and there's mm-hmm. a sort of pun there but I didn't mean that to be (laughs) in a sense of utterly exploring how that world works, whilst actually allowing that not to be bogged down in just saying, well, here's the world. It's actually about finding out what the world is as you go through asking the Mm. questions, well, what would that in turn, and what does it do if you have the angels doing this now? I found that that was a story which could have, in its own way, could never have ended. I think it's a superb (laughs) piece of work. Um, I it, it, it's a real it's a huge influence on me telling Jahan. oh really oh it's huge I just thought actually this proves that you can take a reader and constantly be developing new ideas from what feels like one simple one and it just it, I, it blew I, me when, a when mind. I heard
1: it before, I, got, I got a review copy of it and yeah I, I was reading the blurb and my first thing on the blurb was this cannot possibly work yeah this, it's just, <laughs> this is not going to work and then you start reading
3: it. it's superb isn't it it's it an really amazing is. book
0: yeah. I mean, it's really, if you'd read This Is The Way The World Ends, mm-hmm. you would have had some faith that he would bring it home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that, I mean, that's the first book of his I read, which I think is an extraordinary novel. Yeah. Just wonderful. I've got a really unfair question I want to ask you both. Uh, it was, it was, it, 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 what do you think is the most distinctive and interesting thing about the other's writing? And, and I ask, I wouldn't only do this, because I realise on one level there's nothing particularly connected about your work, but you do... Uh, Collaborate in terms of discussion, yeah. conversation,
3: edit, mm-hmm. editing, and all that kind of. I mean, thing. I mean, we are. We are. I, th- I think we're face to face. Fair to say that we're kind of best friends. Actually, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we. I mean, we speak most oh, days. No, <laughs> I, and it's it's odd because we didn't. No, know, I
0: didn't say.
3: I mean, I mean, the, I mean the, obviously, for the first few years, we knew each other. We couldn't stand each other. It's like one of sort of rom coms. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's no, it's.
2: I, uh, well, I I'll, go, I'll go first. Okay, well, good, because I, mean, I,
3: I want to think okay. of an answer <laughs> yeah. for you. I think uh, it's all I'm, hard. I'm,
2: I'm, I met Rob at a convention in uh, Darby, I guess, must have been, what, four, four years ago or something like that. And I was at a stage where I was just starting to experiment with writing short stories again. And uh, I met him before I had read any of his work and I, I went home with his collection, Love Songs for the Shy and Cynical. Mm. And I started reading the stories and I realised how much they were in his natural voice.
1: Mm. Mm.
2: And there was something about reading them that made me think, I can write things that have my own peculiar sense of humor, that can be kind of smart, and but also weird, and they can be, the stories of a person can be so much like who that person is. And I was saying earlier that I was influenced by Charles de Lint when I started, and I was trying to write all these Charles de Lint stories, and, uh, and they never worked for me. When I read Rob's book, Love Songs for the Shy and Cynical, that was the first moment, I think, where I realized, oh, I can just write like me. Mm-hmm. So that was actually now a description of why why
1: that, that's all about me.
2: <laughs> what funny. I love about Rob's writing is the fact that he can make something so heartbreaking and so funny at the same time. The fact that within the space of a couple of paragraphs, you can go from highs to lows and mm-hmm. highs to lows. And also that he, you talked about this a little bit, um, but... You have, this, you have this great way of bringing you to what you think is the end of the story and then saying, we're going to push this in something that feels like an epilogue but actually blows open the entire concept of what the story was and says, we're doing something different. This is about more than you thought it was going to be mm-hmm. about. And that's what I love about your writing.
3: Oh, thank you. <laughs> what what I get from Helen's work, um, and, I, and I've been a very, I think it's very, very privileged, actually. I mean, I was... Um, because when we became friends, as you say, you you were starting, and if, you know, because you were at that point doing your PhD, and you weren't writing much fiction, and I and I read some. I mean, um, and I thought it was extraordinary, and so I've seen you write most of the stories you've actually had published. I got to see yeah right. very very early on, and in you know we would throw ideas around and things, and what I would always find, I mean, I don't say this to you actually ever do it because it might put you off but but often I, I hear your ideas and I think that's just stupid <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think yeah no no yeah 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 you yeah you go off and write that and I just think oh that's, that's gonna be the first real martial failure and <laughs> but what I get from all of your work and and I think that that you have this tremendous range about about the, about 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 how sad and how funny at the same time your work is, um, but but there has a particular sincerity to it. Everything you do has an has an amazing emotional sincerity. I have not read a single story of yours um, in two books plus now where I haven't felt that it came from something that you truly believed in, and that opens up another corner of who helen marshall is that i haven't seen from the other stories so um, i i find that there's no, there's no one else writing the sort of stories that you write at all i just read them and it's changed my writing i mean i mean i mean i now find that i can write in a more poetic way because because your background also is is, is academia in a way that mine isn't? It's also poetry, and and you're a fantastic poet, and I'm quite scared of poetry, <laughs> um, but I find now a way into that. I mean, we, we come from very very different um, backgrounds, actually, in the way we we approach yeah. similar things. I learned
2: a lot about uh, rhythm and dialogue, which you're very good at from uh, from stage writing.
3: Yeah, well, thank you. So so that's what I mean, that's what I really get. I mean, I. It is a difficult question, and thanks Jonathan for, for actually now making me well, no, embarrassed I, I in front of my friends. It's, it's one of those but questions, because you, yeah. know, you
0: do you know, collaborate in, in, through conversation. Yes, yeah. Uh, and so that makes it very interesting, because I don't think it's really that common. And mm-hmm. certainly not something which people who don't physically encounter you would ever be aware of. No,
3: because the stories aren't really that similar at all. No, no. I mean, I mean, it's, it's one of the fun things. That, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, we're both launching new books at the same time, and and, yeah. it's, and it's actually quite fun. I mean, it's Helen's idea. I mean, Helen's... Cover for her book is disgusting. It's, <laughs> it's, it's of this dead cat. And actually, in some ways, to soften that, um, Helen has come up with this idea for the last few conventions that we've done together where if you buy both of our books, you get this toy scaredy cat. Oh, for cats, yes, so you, that, you, say you get
1: a dead cat. It's stuffed cat. It's a stuffed cat, yeah, right. it's it's a stop stop cat which is
3: also lined <laughs> with real dead cat blood. Um, <laughs> but the thing is is that is that I kind of believe, although our books are very, very different, I mean, sometimes you, you feel quite bad if someone tries to um, launch your book alongside someone else's and you think, but we've got nothing in common at all. Yeah. I, I always feel that if people like my work, I can recommend them Helen's. I can always say, you must try Helen Marshall out. Because although we're not that similar, we also are quite similar.
2: I think we're interested in playing with a lot of the same techniques. and Yeah. yeah. I will.
1: I'll offer one thing that I think you do have in common, and i, I, I read it, but which is, it has nothing to do really with the imagination behind the story. It has to do with the clarity of prose. You have to be able to write with a kind of uh, crystal precision in order to write the kinds of things that you write without permitting the reader to immediately back off into this is metaphor. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if there's an, any ambiguity in the prose, any ambiguity of the description of her trying to find the Jane Austen manuscript, anything goes wrong with that, uh, descriptively, you're inviting the reader to say, "Oh, it's 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 metaphor. It's yeah. not really a fantasy." And,
3: and, story. and hiding behind a metaphor yeah. is always a mistake. Exactly. I and mean, obviously, our stories are metaphors. So lots of you know, and and often they mm. that that's often where they come from. It's actually yeah. a, a strict metaphor. But that's
2: what I like about but uh, awful to do short that. stories versus poetry. Is in short stories, it, it yeah. is about uh, it's about coming up with a storyline that that turns it from a metaphor into something that's happening, mm-hmm. yeah. and something that feels like it has real consequences. And that's the problem with metaphors. Metaphor says, you don't actually have to buy into this, this is this yeah real. Exactly. Yeah. And story is all about everything being real.
1: The story is, the way Clube yeah. puts it, it has to be a story that believes in itself. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, at some point I would like to talk to you both about how, why it is that in some cases you only get an entry into an author's work by hearing them speak themselves. And you're saying about Rob's work, and I think about Garrison Keillor's work, which is only funny when you've once heard him speak. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's completely unfunny before you do. That's true. But that—that that is another conversation on another podcast. Okay. <laughs> Happily enough, but I'd like to thank you both for joining us, as I'm sure Gary would. I would very much. And we, uh, I feel we must point out that they do things. Some. But
3: they uh, do the same things different there. That's, I mm-hmm. that's all right. <laughs> I, and good.
0: gifts for the one that comes after are right. both out now and can be purchased and ordered and all those good things. And until next time, thank you both for being on the Good Street Podcast. Thank you. was great. Okay. thank and you. We will talk again soon. Well, in fact, as soon as I press stop,